Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Shreya. It's good to be back after yet another season of AppSight Behind Us. We are continuing our series of discussing landmark papers in the field of surgical oncology. Today, we have the pleasure of having a very honorable guest, um, and most of our audience probably knows him by name, Dr. Tim Pollack. As we all know, Dr. Tim Pollack is a surgical oncologist and the chair of surgery at Ohio State University. He did his medical school at Tufts and residency at University of Michigan, followed by his surgical oncology fellowship at MD Anderson. He also completed his PhD at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, where he was uh, before he moved to his current position in Columbus in 2016. He's currently enjoying his life um, and his career focus is in surgical education and liver pancreatic surgical oncology. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Dr. Pollack, and thank you for making time for our podcast. Shia, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, be part of this wonderful podcast. Today, we are here to discuss an important landmark paper that came out not too long ago, discussing a very rare cancer that has an increasing worldwide incidence in liver cancers, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. In this episode, we will go over the surgical principles as well as some of the key studies that have defined the current standard treatment regimen for biliary tract cancers. So let's kick off this episode by defining the characteristics of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and what makes the histology so different and challenging at the same time. Dr. Pollack. So thanks again, Shreya, for inviting me to uh, discuss this important disease and the disease that I've been focused on for uh, much of my career. Um, as you noted, this is a relatively rare disease, but it is important to note that the overall incidence of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma has been increasing both in the United States and worldwide. And the reason for this is likely multifactorial. Similar to hepatocellular carcinoma, any underlying injury to the liver can increase the risk of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And in particular, although the overall incidence of hepatitis B and C may be decreasing due to the vaccinations and due to more effective treatment of hepatitis C, there is a worldwide epidemic of obesity. And subsequently, the incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis has been increasing. And this can cause inflammation of the liver and oxidative stress to the liver and can increase the incidence of primary liver cancers, both hepatocellular, but also intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is a challenging disease for many reasons. One reason is because since it arises within the parenchyma of the liver itself, frequently patients do not develop symptoms early in the course of their disease. Because of that, many patients can present with advanced stage disease, either large tumors, which will necessitate extensive hepatic resection if they are operable, as well as many patients present with advanced inoperable disease with large tumors or multifocal tumors. In addition to presenting with advanced disease, 
this particular cancer tends to be somewhat chemo resistant. As we will be discussing later on, there has not been many advances in the systemic treatment of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And if you look at the patterns of recurrence for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, even active, after curative intent resection, many of these patients will fail with systemic disease. So unlike hepatocellular carcinoma, which frequently recurs within the liver, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma frequently tends to recur outside the liver, thereby emphasizing how this is a, both a local and a systemic disease, and we really will need more efficacious systemic chemotherapy in combination with resection if we are to make improvements towards the overall outcome of patients who suffer from this challenging disease. Uh, Dr. Pollack, you, uh, you write in your paper that resection remains the best chance of long-term cure in, in these patients. What, what can you tell us about the surgical principles of resection? What sorts of things are you looking at when you're conducting your preoperative evaluation of a, of a patient with an IHC? And what are you hoping to accomplish in surgery? Well, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate your invitation also to participate in the podcast. So I think it's important when working patients up with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma that obviously you first confirm the diagnosis. Often these patients will present with a lesion that has been incidentally identified through cross-sectional imaging, perhaps for some nonspecific symptoms or imaging that has been obtained for other causes. Once a mass has been identified in the liver, then it obviously needs to be worked up. Frequently, if the mass is detected at an outside institution, it will be biopsied. On the biopsy, one should look for um, signs of biliary dysplasia and also on aminohistochemical staining, a specific pattern that suggests a patobiliary origin of the tumor. That being said, it can sometimes be challenging to diagnose the tumor based on a needle biopsy and one always needs to ensure that this truly represents primary adenocarcinoma or primary intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and not a secondary metastasis from an unrecognized primary site. That being said, one should ensure that any patient who presents with an adenocarcinoma to the liver has had the appropriate recent workup to rule out other primary tumors such as a colorectal lesion and in women, a breast cancer primary. Patients who have a mass in the liver really need to be worked up with state-of-the-art imaging. Cross-sectional imaging should either involve CT scan or I prefer MRI. Intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma has distinct features that are easily um, identifiable and separate from hepatocellular carcinoma, especially when the imaging is reviewed by an experienced hepatoradiologist. In particular, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma tends to be a very fibrous tumor, and therefore in early images, it tends to be hypo-intense and only enhances on later images on the scans. This is in contrast to hepatocellular carcinoma, which tends to enhance early and has late washout. Therefore, on cross-sectional imaging, especially for large tumors, most experienced radiologists can differentiate an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma compared to a hepatocellular carcinoma. ICC also has some other features, 
such as peritumoral biliary ductal dilatation that can act as a clue that you are dealing with an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. In addition to CT and MRI, I also tend to favor the use of PET scans. PET scans can help identify not only in a possible occult primary uh, malignancy, but also can help you identify whether there is nodal disease. This is important because in assessing a patient for surgery, I frequently look to see if the tumor is um, singular and or multifocal in nature. And I also look to see if there is suspicious or metastatic lymph nodes in the preoperative setting. For those patients who have multifocal disease or those patients who have positive lymph nodes in the preoperative setting, I tend to favor treating those patients with preoperative chemotherapy as the prognosis for patients with multifocal disease and or lymph node metastases is significantly worse. Therefore, giving preoperative chemotherapy to these, to these patients may help better select who truly will benefit from surgical resection. For those patients who I am planning to take to the operating room, the same principles apply as do for any resection of primary or metastatic disease to the liver. That is, one should perform a parenchymal sparing operation that um, allows you to achieve a margin, margin negative resection. A true anatomic resection is not needed to resect intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Rather, one should achieve that resection, which allows you to have a negative margin while sparing as much hepatic parenchyma as possible. At the time of surgery, one should also perform a lymphadenectomy. I believe this is extremely important, although unfortunately, the utilization of lymphadenectomy for this disease remains woefully low in the United States. In fact, we have published data that have demonstrated that a lymphadenectomy is only performed in roughly 50% of operations for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. I, have, uh, I and my research group have published extensively on this and believe strongly that all patients need a lymphadenectomy for prognostic purposes and also to um, achieve local regional control of the nodal basins. Is there a number, a cutoff number that should be required for the lymph node uh, lymphadenectomy for either, uh, for a left-sided or a right-sided uh, lesion? So removal of at least six lymph nodes is recommended by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And typically lymph nodes should be removed from station eight, which is along the common hepatic artery, as well as station 12, which is along the um, hepatoduodenal ligament. Obviously, the number of lymph nodes examined is important because this decreases the risk that a patient is understaged. If one, only, if one, if one harvests only one lymph node, one cannot be sure, the surgeon cannot be sure whether they have adequately staged the patient or not. And looking at empiric data, the cutoff point seems to be around six, that if one can achieve an evaluation of six lymph nodes, the risk of understaging the patient is very minimal. That said, it is frequently difficult to have six lymph nodes in a final pathology report. And if you look at national data, 
among those patients who undergo a lymphadenectomy for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, only roughly 30 to 40% will have one to five lymph nodes in the specimen, and only 10 to 25% of patients will have six or more lymph nodes in the uh, specimen. It's prognostically important not only to achieve uh, six lymph nodes to ensure that there is not inappropriate um, staging of patients, but also the number of metastatic nodes is important with increasing numbers of metastatic nodes being associated with worse overall survival. Can you uh, discuss your technique in achieving the lymph node harvest or any pearls that you may have to improve the yield of the specimen? I think that's a good question, Michael. So this is kind of an, an age-old question of whether, you know, it's the surgeon or the pathologist, and it's probably a combination of both. So surgical technique uh, clearly matters, um, whether one is doing a true anatomic dissection along the uh, common hepatic artery, the proper hepatic artery, uh, skeletonizing the hepatoduodenal ligament, uh, truly clearing stations 8 and 12, and even getting some of the retro uh, pancreatic lymph nodes. That being said, the pathologist is also important. And um, whether one is um, at a center um, that um, uses uh, fat clearing techniques uh, to look at the lymph nodes and or has pathologists who are dedicated to identifying uh, the uh, full complement of lymph nodes in a specimen is that, delivered, that is delivered to them can also vary. And we published a study a while back that looked at colorectal cancer, not intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, and saw that the number of lymph nodes in any surgical specimen varied not only by the surgeon, but also by the pathologist. So I think it's important that surgeons work closely in conjunction with their pathologists and educate them that we are trying to achieve at least six lymph nodes uh, being evaluated in the specimen and to ask our pathologists to do their due diligence to ensure that they fully vet the specimen to try to achieve that number. Thank you, Dr. Pollack. I'd like to pivot now to the next uh, major section of your paper, which is on adjuvant therapy. You know, we don't know uh, a lot yet about uh, about optimal adjuvant therapy, but um, but what do we know? And perhaps we can start with the the Prodigy twelve Accord eighteen trial. Why why was this trial conducted, and what have we learned from it? Sure, that's a great question, Michael. Well, I think one of the reasons why these trials have been conducted, especially for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, is again, the prognosis is poor. If you look at patients who undergo curative intent resection for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, the five-year survival ranges from about 30 to 40%. Many patients will recur, and many patients will recur early. And if you look at data from our group and others, you'll note that a significant subset of patients will even recur early within the first year after an operation, and up to 50% of patients can recur even within two to three years of their operation. And among patients who do recur, 50% of patients will have a systemic site of disease, suggesting that you need a systemic treatment modality for these patients. So that's why the emphasis on adjuvant therapy comes in, because patients frequently recur. And if you start looking at patients who have multiple lesions or patients who have lymph node metastases, the incidence of recurrence is extremely high. So that serves the underlying basis or conceptual model of why adjuvant therapies may be um, important. 
protege 12 uh, trial was a trial that basically looked at adjuvant therapy for biliary tract cancers. And it's important to note that um, many of the trials that are done for biliary tract cancers uh, conglomerate um, all the different types of biliary tract cancers. Since most of these are relatively rare, it is extremely hard to conduct a prospective randomized trial solely on intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. As such, most trials basically include distal cholangio, intrahepatic cholangio, and gallbladder cancer under the nomenclature of biliary tract cancers. So that's the first thing that's important to point out because even though these cancers are all considered together in these clinical trials, they are obviously different diseases and the benefit of adjuvant therapy may be different um, based on the different disease. That being said, the standard of care for most biliary tract cancers in the uh, either inoperable setting or the adjuvant setting has long been doublet therapy with gemcitabine and cisplatin. And those data were derivative from the ABC or the advanced biliary cancer trial that basically showed that doublet therapy with gemcist was better than uh, monotherapy um, alone. The, the protege 12 trial looked specifically at gemox, so gemcitabine plus oxaloplatin in an adjuvant setting. What um, this study did, it was a multi-center, um, open-label, open prospective uh, randomized uh, trial that looked at any patient who had a biliary tract cancer who underwent an R0 or R1, so microscopically negative or microscopically positive resection, and then randomized those patients to receive either gem ox or standard surveillance. And the primary endpoints were uh, recurrence-free survival and also some quality of um, life uh, information. They randomized 196 uh, patients, um, 86 of whom had intrahepatic uh, cholangiocarcinoma. And what they found was that there was no significant difference in median recurrence-free survival among those patients in the GEM-OX group versus those patients who were randomized to standard uh, surveillance. And therefore, the conclusion was that GEM-OX was not recommended for routine adjuvant uh, uh, treatment of resected biliary tract cancers. And so around the same time, so the GEMOX trial that he just talked about happened between 2009 and 2014, just to put it into perspective for our audience here. Following that trial or around that time was the BILCAP trial. This occurred in UK between 2006 and 2014. Tell us a little bit about this trial and what this trial brought um, into uh, the management of biliary tract cancers. Sure. So um, the um, Protege 12 trial was a French trial. And as you mentioned, the BILCAP trial was a trial that was performed in the United Kingdom. And many of these trials kind of overlap with regards to when they're being planned and when they're being executed. So data from GEMOX was not available while um, the BILCAP trial was being planned or executed. The BILCAP trial was a similar trial in that it looked at adjuvant treatment for patients who, were, who underwent resection of biliary uh, tract uh, cancer. It was a multi-center prospective uh, randomized trial 
that essentially randomized patients who underwent an R0 or R1 resection for biliary tract cancer. But instead of Gemox, patients were randomized to receive either capsidabine or observation standard surveillance. And the primary outcome was overall survival. So unlike the protege 12 trial, which essentially was a negative trial, in the BILCAP trial, there were 447 patients um, who were evaluated, 84 of whom had intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And this study demonstrated a positive benefit for patients to be treated with adjuvant capsidabine following resection. Specifically, after adjusting for preplanned uh, prognostic uh, and stratification factors, the authors noted that there was an essentially 25 to 30% reduction in the risk of death um, overall with the administration of capsidabine um, versus um, surveillance alone. And because of these data, many medical oncologists have now adopted capsidabine um, as adjuvant therapy for patients being treated um, for um, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma following curative intent resection. It is somewhat hard to um, figure out or, or, or rationalize how the GEMOX trial was negative and the capsidabine trial was positive, and not only positive, but showed a fairly dramatic 30% reduction. And although it is very dangerous to compare uh, different trials, um, I will still do it. Um, and if you look at the, um, the uh, GEMOX trial, you find that many of the patients in that trial, almost 90% underwent an R0 resection, and the incidence of lymph node metastasis was around uh, 35%. In contrast, in the BILCAP trial, the um, overall um, incidence of an R1 uh, resection uh, was only about, um, was, much, was much higher. So the incidence of an R0 resection was lower. Let me put it that way, 60%. And the incidence of lymph node metastasis was higher at 50%. So patients within the BILCAP trial generally had worse prognostic factors, a higher incidence of a uh, margin positive resection and a higher uh, incidence or prevalence of lymph node metastases. So perhaps the benefit from adjuvant therapy is more pronounced among those patients who have more adverse features such as lymph node metastases. And this is all the more reason why um, a surgeon should perform uh, lymphadenectomy at the time of a surgical uh, resection because we know that lymph node metastases are prognostically important. And that's why we do a lymphadenectomy when we perform a colon resection. That's why we do it when we do a resection for gallbladder cancer. And in fact, if one does not obtain the prognostic information from the nodal basins, then you might as well not stage the patient at all because the T categories in the AJCC staging are only prognostically important in those patients who have N0 disease. Once someone has nodal metastases, that is what is driving their prognosis. The fact that they have disseminated disease in the nodal basin 
which likely suggests that they are at much higher risk for systemic therapy. And that is why also patients with node positive disease are likely to benefit the most from adjuvant therapy. Thank you, Dr. Pollack. That was uh, the exactly the expertise that we really want uh, when we are reading through these landmark papers and um, really critically analyzing the analyses. So thank you so much for those pearls. Tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for biliary tract cancers and intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. Well, I, I think what's really um, important on the horizon is number one, that we need more prospective trials. In order to do that, we need more collaboration with um, large centers who are treating these patients. As you noted, this is still a relatively rare disease. And if we are to study this disease, we need to be very collaborative in nature. The other thing that is very um, important and exciting is more um, personalized therapy, targeted therapy. They're looking at specific um, uh, genetic mutational analyses um, and targeting therapies to either um, IDH1 mutations, um, immunotherapy for microsatellite uh, instability, um, or um, EGFR uh, receptors, um, things like that. So patients who have um, unresectable, inoperable disease, I feel strongly that those patients should be treated with standard therapy, but should also be molecularly profiled as there are a number of clinical trials that are open right now with specific targeted agents based on the molecular profile of the intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. That does seem to be the way of the future, uh, personalized, targeted therapy to, to really hammer in at the, the particular tumor biology that, that we're dealing with. Um, what, what about uh, local regional therapy? Any, anything uh, new on the horizon regarding, um, regarding that? Yes, I, I think local regional therapy definitely has a role for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, perhaps not as much as it does for um, hepatocellular carcinoma, Again, because intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma tends to be more of a systemic disease. That being said, there are a subset of patients who may have um, a large burden uh, in their uh, liver. Um, and if one can downsize the disease in their liver, they may be candidates for surgical resection. There have been some data from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group that have shown favorable responses to interarterial therapy, and in, and in particular, hepatic artery infusion therapy with fairly significant responses in the liver. One must remember that even among patients who develop extrahepatic disease, frequently the proximate cause of death is progression within the liver. So even though local regional therapies in the form of hepatic arterial infusion pumps taste, transarterial chemoembolization, and or yttrium-90 may not cure the patient, it may retard the progression of disease in the liver and help prolong the duration and quality of a patient's life. This is particularly important among patients um, in a situation where systemic chemotherapy has traditionally been poor and has not resulted in a dramatic cytoreduction of the disease in the liver. So I think all of these patients should be treated in a multidisciplinary setting 
uh, where a full complement of surgical oncologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, uh, pathologists, radiologists can discuss the patient and bring to bear the multimodality therapies that are available uh, for this disease. The one component of the multimodal treatment for biliary tract cancers that we did not discuss just yet is the adjuvant radiation. What's the role of adding radiation to intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? I don't think that adjuvant radiation has a, plays a big role in the treatment of uh, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Um, I think that uh, you know, among patients who even have an R1 margin, uh, frequently it is very difficult to tell uh, where the exact margin positivity was. Uh, for those of us who have done um, hepatic resections, you can appreciate that there's a large surface area along the cut edge of the liver once the specimen has been removed. And perhaps one could uh, mark the area that was closest with clips and target that for radiation. I really think that um, it has a, a limited uh, role in the setting of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. In my mind, uh, this disease is really a systemic disease. And I frequently think of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma almost not too dissimilar to pancreatic adenocarcinoma in the sense that uh, when most patients are seen, it's likely that this disease is systemic already, um, that we need to be selecting these patients well. And I think moving into the future, we will be seeing that we will be utilizing more and more perhaps preoperative chemotherapy to treat these patients to better select the biology of the tumor to see who will truly benefit from a surgical resection. Because as I noted at the beginning, not infrequently, these patients present with large lesions and need major hepatectomies, either hemihepatectomies or extended hepatectomies. And we really want to be identifying who's truly going to be benefiting from surgical resection. And that will be that will require not only excellent surgical technique, but um, dramatic advances in um, the efficacy of the systemic therapy being used. Absolutely. Dr. Pollack, this has been a very, uh, very nice discussion on intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Any concluding remarks, anything from the landmark series paper that you would like to um, end with? Uh, I would just like to thank uh, you and uh, Michael Agentry. I really appreciate these opportunities. I want to recognize uh, Dr. Uh, Kelly McMasters in the Annals of uh, Surgical Oncology for um, promoting this wonderful landmark series. I think it's a great idea to have a landmark series that in a very pithy way highlights the key studies for uh, particular oncologic diseases. And I would strongly encourage both residents and faculty uh, to read these landmark series papers um, as I think there will be an excellent uh, way to broaden your knowledge base uh, with regards to treating uh, different diseases in the field of oncology. Well, thank you so much once again, Dr. Pollack. Uh, really appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you again. Until next time, dominate the day.